you have a Bible with you, would you open it to Acts chapter 2? And if you were here last week, you remember that we started on this passage and uh, we looked at the question or the issue of the mighty works of God. We said, what are the mighty works of God? Now, we could have an exam and find out who remembers But that was in verse 11 of chapter 2, the mighty works of God. And it's a particular word that is used in other places in scripture. And in essence, the mighty works of God, of course, were the the transfiguration, the death and resurrection of Christ, and then the coming of the Spirit. But God continues to work, and he works mightily. Now this morning... We have Peter's message. That's the next tip. Oh, don't worry. People should have their own Bibles anyway. <laughs> They woke everyone up, you know. Yeah, no, that's all right. <laughs> we right? All right, Acts chapter two. The passage that we read is Peter's message. Now they didn't have Bibles in those days. They had the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. But what I want to look with you at initially is verse 23 where Peter in his sermon says this Jesus delivered up or given over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. man was speaking at a a Bible study (coughs) and he raised the question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? And there were several answers. Immediately some of them said, oh, the Roman soldiers. Yes. Others said, the Sanhedrin of the Jews yes others said well Judas was responsible yes Uh, the crowd yes Uh, and then someone said well we were involved Uh, we must have killed Jesus yes all of those answers have elements of truth in them but the essential answer to the question as to who killed Jesus is God did Jesus was not a volunteer. He didn't put up his hand in heaven and say to the Father of the Spirit, I'll go and I'll die. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, his only begotten Son, his one and only Son to die and so here's the point that Peter raises up here this Jesus given over or 
delivered. For what was he delivered? It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't something that just happened. It was the plan of God to deliver Jesus over to death. Now Peter goes on and says, You crucified, and that's true, they did. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then he says, God raised him up. So none of the answers that we might give concerning the crowd or the Roman soldiers or the Sanhedrin can excuse us. It was this Jesus whom you crucified, but it was all according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. And without this, without this is the essential fact of our Christian faith as we live by grace through faith, we collapse. And the danger is that some people try to inflate themselves. It's like getting a spiritual bicycle pump and pumping up the tyres like we used to do in old days. But in this we learn that Jesus defeated death before he died. Jesus defeated death and dealt with sin before he died. His body underwent no decay. His resurrection gift to his people is the Holy Spirit. And he is the means by which we proclaim the continuous and indestructible because incorruptible lordship over the world. People today are concerned. Well, they've always been concerned, but now that there's such a big change in the United States, Christian people are even saying, well, what's going to happen? And my answer is, God is sovereign. The world has always been in turmoil. We have always been faced with political and economic issues in the history of the world. Our parents used to talk about such things. Our grandparents used to talk about such issues. And our children will as well. And irrespective of what occurs, and and we don't know what's going to happen, God is sovereign and it was God in his foreknowledge and plan that gave his son to deal with all of our sin. But Jesus rose from the dead. Peter talks about that from verses 29 to 33. If you've got your Bibles, he's he's referred to David in this reading. It's a great message. But you'll notice in verse 29 he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. David died and was buried. He He did not rise from the dead. Jesus died and was buried and he arose by the ministry of the Father. But Jesus did not rise from the dead for his own benefit. His rising enabled the Holy Spirit to come at what we call Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And the only life you and I have this morning as believers 
the only life that this church has as we look to a new pastor coming is the life of the Holy Spirit. James is not going to be the man to solve all of our problems. James is not an angel and even if he were he wouldn't be solving the problems. It is only the Holy Spirit of God as he moves at the direction of the Father, the Son and the Spirit who can deal with you and me as we should be. We human beings are not a spiritual engine room to keep the church operating. The Spirit has come. He is with us this morning. He is among us this morning. He is in us this morning, in our lives individually as well as with us collectively. Now do you notice when you sit here this morning the motto at the back You know, you can see it and not see it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Oh yeah. Where's that from? It comes, it's not a motto, really. It's from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And this man was facing in his nation invasion from an evil nation from the north. And he had to preach to his people. And he had a greatly difficult time. And they were going to be captured and taken off. But in the midst of all that, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It doesn't matter what you and I face. And sometimes our Our days are excruciating, either with difficulty or pain or problems or whatever we want to call them. But the Lord is always in his holy temple. Ah, where's his holy temple? Jesus is the holy temple of God. But so are you and I. We are the temple of God, writes Paul in Corinthians. We are holy people. We are saints. I need to remind myself of that just so often. I'm a holy person. So I better live as a holy person. The Lord is in his holy temple. The contrast with idols. Are there any idols in the church? The church is full of idols. Full of them. You may not strike it in the same way as people do who belong to a particular church. Bethel uses this church and we're grateful that we can come here. This is actually a Presbyterian owned church building. The Presbyterians have idols. You bet they do. Baptists don't of course, they've gone far past all of that. They are an idol unto themselves. <laughs> Idols. What's an idol? It is something or someone that takes the place of Almighty God in our worship. And it occurs in our mind, even in our conscience, in the engine room of our head, 
That's where the difficulties are. That's where the, the battles of being a Christian arise. That's where the idols are. And every day and throughout the day we are contrasted with that fact of the living God and the pressure of idolatry through the media and sometimes through church life. We say to one another, how are you going? And sometimes all they come out with is their idols. This and that and the other. Idols are nothing, they're piffling. They're gone. But they keep on coming back. It's not that they're resurrected, it's just that they're still around in this world. This passage we're looking at in its totality is the first Christian sermon. It's the authoritative record for the start of the Christian church and its roots are in God's call to Abraham. Now what sort of a guy was Abraham? Well his original name as you know was Abram. And the book of Joshua tells us that he and his father and his other family members lived around a place called Haran in the Middle East and they were pagans. And God came and said, I want you to get out of here and go to a place that I'll show you. What did Abram do? Well, he said to these relatives, God's told me to go. What God? Which one of the idol gods that we've got told you? No, no, none of them. It was a, a God that I've never met before and a God I couldn't see and he came to me and he changed my life and he told me to leave. Well, where are you going? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Haven't you been to the travel agent? Yeah, but he's got no clues either. Well, when do you leave? I leave now. Well, who do, who's going with you? Well, God told me to go. But of course there were other hangers-on that went. His nephew Lot decided this sounds a good thing, so he'd go as well. And you know what happened to him and his family. And Abram left and he went. He did not know where he was going. I think it's great that you haven't set a plan for James when he comes. You haven't said he's got to do this, that and the other. But he set a plan and Sufjan showed me this morning on his phone James's plan for preaching for the rest of the year. That's good. It might have to be changed but he knows where he's going biblically. And that's the important part. So let me ask you, where are you going biblically? Because you and I are all on the same level. And James is not a saint, so I better not talk about him too much. He's going to listen to this tape. <coughs> he's not a saint in that sense. He's a Christian saint. He's a holy man. But where are we going biblically in our understanding of what God says in the scriptures? The church spread in the early days on its dynamic testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead and that God called him both Lord and Messiah. This one whom the Father sent, who did, he delivered him over but he raised him from death. And he met with his followers and then he ascended and the Spirit came. 
The Lordship of Christ over all the nations of our planet is based on this victorious death and resurrection. And the Gospel creates one new people in Christ. Now notice verses 36 and 37. Paul is coming, Peter's coming towards the end of his sermon. He says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. In other words, pay, pay attention to this. This is what he's getting at. That God has made him, that is Christ, he has made him both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified, Yes, it's true that God delivered him over, but human beings crucified him on the cross. Now what's the reaction to a sermon like that? Because that's the, that's the end of Peter's sermon. And the story goes on that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You must do something according to God's word whenever you hear his word. You can't say, oh, that's nice. We can't respond, I hope something, there's something nice for morning tea. We can't think in our minds, well, that's another service ticked off. We have to say in the right sense to the Lord, what shall we do? Because grace moves. Grace is not a pile of spirituality sitting on a seat of a pew in a pew of a church. Grace motivates us in a variety of ways. It's not necessarily some physical move but it is the spirituality of a God who is concerned to keep reaching into our hearts in the midst of all the difficulties that we go through. They said, what shall we do? And Peter had an answer to them because this is the, the crucial part. In verse 38, he said, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who are those who are far off? The Gentiles. They weren't there maybe one or two on the edge of the crowd, but this was a Jewish situation. Those who were far off. But notice in its context, it is all those whom the, the Lord our God calls to himself. We're not called to a church or to a denomination. We're not called to a theological belief. God calls us to himself. And if you haven't repented and been baptised, then you should do so this morning. You should repent. Repentance is God's gift to us. I heard Brian preach on repentance at the Bible College some years ago. still remember some aspects of the sermon. Repent. 
God's gift. We can't ginger ourselves up. You can't get yourself by the scruff of the neck and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to repent. No, no. God comes to us and in his grace calls us to repent and changes our lives and the way we see ourselves, the way we see our place in the kingdom of God, the way we see what he's doing to it. Now Peter is emphasising the forgiveness of sins. He mentions baptism. The Jews regarded baptism necessary for Gentiles who became Jews. But here are two gifts of God. Illustrated by baptism, the forgiveness of all our sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit to unite and to transform us into the image of Christ. That's what God does. That's what he has done if you're a believer this morning. And there are times when we say, well, John, I, I, I mess up. I make mistakes. I disappoint God and I disappoint myself. I have problems in my family in my marriage, in my, in my understanding. Well, my friend, join the mob. There is no one who can stand tall and say, look at me and follow me. There is only Jesus Christ. That's why we focus on him and look to him for new life. Now I'm not going to mention verses 42 and 43 and that. James is going to talk about all that when he comes. But if we were to take away the message of the cross and the resurrection and therefore take away the message of the gospel, the church would cease to exist. Because the church proclaims the gospel and the church is not a denomination or a non-denomination gathering. The church is people like you and me. We are the body of Christ. We are those whom the Spirit uses. Please don't say to yourself, oh, God doesn't use me much. God never ceases working. Jesus says, is as recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 17, and my, one of my favourite verses, the Father is always at work and I'm always at work and it's a present continuous tense. God always continues to work by his Spirit. He is working in you and me right now. He's working in this church right now because we as the church are gathered together as his people God is at work and he will continue to work his grace and goodness and love in our hearts. Let's thank him. Our Father, please enable us not to look at ourselves either for pride or disappointment. Not to look at ourselves and think we're doing well or we're messing up but rather look to you by faith and to realise that 
we never reach a point where we can say, I have achieved. We look to you because you are our strength, our life. We have nothing apart from you and we pray that you will cement these truths in our hearts for the glory and praise of your name. Amen.